Stay hungry, stay foolish. Businesses can't be run on gut instinct. That was for our primitive, tribal days. To run a truly successful business now, leaders must take a rational approach to making significant decisions to avoid catastrophes, maximize their bottom line, and succeed against competitors. General Electric, Boeing, Motorola, great companies die on the altar of bad decision making. And in this quicksilver economy, no business leader can afford to make a mistake. They need a step-by-step approach to arriving at better decisions that sustain the business, help achieve their goals, and edge out their competitors. Our guest is a leading expert on avoiding business disasters and draws on 20 years of extensive consulting, coaching, and speaking experience to show how pioneering leaders and organizations, many of them his clients, avoid business disasters. We welcome author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, Dr. Gleb Tsipersky. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Aidan. It's a pleasure. Great to have you on the show. I'm going to start today's show with an excerpt from your introduction to the book, and it goes as follows. Our authentic selves are adapted for the ancient savanna, not for the modern day business world. For the sake of our bottom lines, we must avoid going with our primitive instincts, avoid going with our guts. Now, this is something that's very relevant in peacetimes, but in times of war, like we're in at the moment with the COVID pandemic, fear is added to the mix. Understanding and knowing our human frailties is a huge advantage, Gleb. It really is. And so here we have to understand what our gut is adapted for. And as you said, it's adapted for the ancient savanna, not the modern business world. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient savanna, we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. We were hunters, gatherers, and foragers. And our biggest response to threats was the fight or flight response. So think about that. Our gut reaction when we see a threat is to either fight or flee. That's the natural response. That's what we feel like. That's what feels right, whether in business or in personal life. Now, it's also called the fight or flight response because our ancestors had to jump at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. In the savanna environment, that was great because the threats we faced were immediate, intense in the moment. Those were the kinds of threats we faced. But you might notice there are many less saber-toothed tigers in the modern day. Unfortunately, we overwhelmingly treat threats like they're saber-toothed tigers. So let's say the COVID-19 pandemic. Think about that. How did people respond? Ordinary people responded in either of two ways. They either ignored the information, you know, said that it's okay, it's not going to touch me, you know, blitz spirit, we're going to be fine. <laughs> no, no, nothing is going to happen to us. That's one way. That's fleeing. They're fleeing from the reality of the information. And the other response, of course, is the fight response, where they go to the stores and buy up all the toilet paper because somehow their instinct feels like they should use that to fight the invisible germs that are coming to get them. That's the fight response. And businesses did the same thing. A whole bunch of business leaders, political leaders, you know, Boris Johnson, of course, in the UK and others ignored this threat. They thought that it wouldn't be a big deal. Maybe let it wash over the UK from the UK government perspective or from business leaders in the UK. They ignored it. A whole bunch of them said, well, it's not going to impact us. And 
prominent banks, financers also said that, and a whole bunch of others just went to their emergency plan, their continuity plan, they treated it as an in-the-moment emergency. And of course, it's not that. It's a slow-moving train wreck. It's a slow-moving, gradually rising crisis that then overwhelms the system, the situation, everyone. And this is something that our gut reactions are completely unprepared for, absolutely not prepared for. There was nothing like that in the Savannah environment. That's not what we evolved for. And the specific dangerous judgment here that we have to pay a lot of attention to is called the normalcy bias. Now, the normalcy bias is one out of over 100 cognitive biases that cause us to make really bad decisions in the modern environment. And that's what we have to watch out for. You can look at the list of cognitive biases on Wikipedia. There's over 100 of them. My book talks about the 30 most dangerous ones for business leaders, for individual professionals, solopreneurs, and how to address them. So the normalcy bias refers to our tendency to see the immediate and medium-term future, the next couple of years, kind of like the past. It's going to be mostly the same, and it's mostly an accurate perspective. That's mostly what happens. Where the immediate future, the medium-term future, and the next couple of years are mostly like the past, maybe with a little bit of changes, more use of cell phones, smartphones, and whatnot. But sometimes it's not. And those sometimes where it's not, those are big, big problems for us. And of course, this situation with COVID-19 is a classical example of where it's not. What happened in January 2020 when it rolled over our countries? Everyone around the world experienced a huge major disruption and our world will never be the same. What we will experience, especially in countries that didn't take sufficient precautions like the US here or the UK, those countries had a lot of infections. And those infections will keep going throughout these countries, even if they manage to flatten the curve and whatnot. So you have to have a long-term period of restriction to flatten the curve and not get the national health system in the UK or hospital systems in the US, not get them overwhelmed. But what happens after you lift the restrictions? Well, then you have secondary outbreaks. And that's what happened in countries that initially successfully controlled COVID-19, whether Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, Germany did a great job. They had secondary outbreaks. So they had new cases of COVID-19. And then they had to reimpose restrictions. So we'll have waves of restrictions and loosenings, restrictions and loosenings, all the way until we discover a vaccine and mass produce it. And that will not be until early 2022. That's the earliest reasonable, our most optimistic timeline when we can have it. Most likely it'll be closer to 2023, 24 when we can get a vaccine. So we are in a majorly disrupted situation. The world will never go back to January 2020. And business leaders, as well as ordinary private citizens, government leaders, nonprofit leaders who are still in that mode of emergency mode, we will get through this in a couple of months, you know, blitz spirit and we'll be fine. They will really hurt themselves, hurt their companies, hurt their organizations, hurt their societies going forward if they don't undertake a major, major transformation in their strategic plans going forward, in their internal business model, how they run their business internally, in their external business model, how they deliver their services, how they collaborate with others. Those are all fundamental transformations that they need to make. 
And it doesn't feel like that. It's very counterintuitive. It's incredibly difficult to accept. You know, a lot of people with whom I talk about this, even a lot of my clients, it takes a whole bunch of conversations for them to slowly, gradually come to accept that we are in the new normal or a new abnormal, as I like to say, that we're in the new abnormal and we'll, things will never be the same. It feels very counterintuitive, but it's true. And this feeling of counterintuition, of going against your gut instincts to realize that, hey, you, we are in a really different situation that's the kind of things you need to do to address cognitive biases and it feels very hard it feels very difficult but if you don't do it you're really going to be in a bad bad situation your work in business disasters essentially you advise clients for years you've been doing this for 20 years and mm -hmm. you did it before the 2008 2009 downturn you learned a lot from that and you, like me, can be a little bit of a chicken little telling people the sky is falling down, but there's always a storm coming and the storms are coming faster and faster. And this COVID pandemic is just a different form of storm. But mm -hmm. understanding the biases become extremely important. And to the listener here, we're not going to focus purely on COVID here because a lot of us are sick of hearing about it. But there's a couple <laughs> of biases that I picked out that are very relevant to it. One of them being with the amount of negative news that we can fill ourselves with is the illusionary truth effect. And then you mentioned there that we're starting to get slowly used to this new abnormal and we have the risk of the mere exposure effect. Yes. So the illusionary truth effect is a subtype of mere exposure effect. The mere exposure effect refers to the fact that when we are increasingly exposed to certain information, we are less triggered by it. And that, again, goes back to our savanna environment. When we first saw a new thing, that was very likely to be either a major threat or a major opportunity. That, that's how our brain treats novelty. It's something that we would really have to pay a lot of attention to. And so we pay a lot of attention to it, most likely because it's a threat, because, you know, in that survival environment, survival was very much uh, endangered. So most likely whatever new thing happened was a threat, but it's also possible that it's an opportunity. So... Over time, as we learn about this new thing, we're exposed to it, maybe a new animal, maybe a new fruit or something like that, we become less triggered. We become It becomes less emotionally salient to us. And so we come to accept it as part of our environment. And that same thing happens in our modern environment. Whenever we see something new, some novelty, something different, we pay a lot of attention to it when it's emotionally salient, at least. Not like, you know, something happening in Wuhan, China that doesn't feel emotionally salient or something happening in far off, you know, when, let's say, the Boeing leadership first found out information that the 737 MAX was uh, problematic, didn't really pay attention to it, even though it should have. So it depends on how the information is brought to you and who brings it to you. But if it's a trusted objective source so that you perceive as trust and objective, you're going to be paying a lot of attention to it. And over time, you're going to be paying less and less attention to it. It's going to become normalized. It's going to become part of your life. That is not a bad thing. We don't want to be always paying attention to the new thing in our environment. However, it might become a problem when we don't pay enough attention to it. That's one. And we make those mistakes when we don't pay enough attention to things that we get used to. That's one. Now, the illusory truth effect is a subtype of this that really hurts us. So the illusory truth effect refers to the fact that whenever something is repeated, whenever you're re-exposed to information, you come to accept it more. So again, whenever you 
hear a new piece of information and then you hear it again and again, you come to accept it as more truthful, more real than it is. You see, I right now, I just did this thing. I said the same thing twice and in different words. And the second time, it felt more believable. It felt more like, oh, yes, this makes sense. That's because you're exposed to this information for a second time and it feels less novel. It feels less challenging. It feels like less something you should pay attention to. It's just something that goes under the spectrum. It's like, okay, yes, this is true. Whenever you're paying attention to a source of information, if you have the information source makes a claim, then the first time you're like more skeptical about it, you say, oh, wow, is this really true? And then this person or this news source keeps saying the same thing, same thing, same thing. And especially if it doesn't get challenged by other news sources, by other authorities, it begins to feel like, yes, this is true. This is absolutely the same thing. This is absolutely the case. Whatever it's uh, a lot of people, for example, came to believe that the NHS would get 350 million a week if Brexit happened. Of course, we see that's not happening in the UK, and there are many, many other examples where the, these sorts of things aren't happening. But people come to believe this. People come to believe things that are false, and that's the illusory truth effect that we have to really watch out for. Yeah, and we had a show a couple of weeks ago with Jody Jackson, and her book was You Are What You Read. And we talked about this mm. because if you fill yourself with too much negative news, for example, it actually has negative cognitive effects on you. Mm -hmm. And equally, too much of the positive news is not so good for you. And this leads us nicely to the idea of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias refers to us looking for information that confirms our beliefs and ignoring information that doesn't. So let's say you are wondering about uh, the COVID-19. Let's just go with that since that's an example we used before. And if you look for information on Google and you put into Google, is COVID-19 just like the flu? Now, what kind of questions, what kind of answers will you tend to get to that question? <laughs> you will tend to get questions, you will tend to get answers showing that yes, it is just like the flu because of the way you frame the question. If you ask the question, how is COVID-19 not like the common flu, you would get <laughs> you would get results that show you that it's not like the common flu. So those are examples of how you would use it in everyday life that's really problematic. Now, the same thing happens uh, in companies and professional settings. We'll go back to Boeing since we use that as an example. So Boeing, what it looked for, the leadership ignored information that the 737 MAX was not safe, that was coming out from inside the company. They had a lot of sources telling the leadership, telling their supervisors and going directly to the Boeing top-level leadership, telling them that it's not safe. I mean, you had internal emails, and I'm quoting directly here, that came out in January 2020, saying that this is a plain super created by monkeys supervised by clowns this is not a phrase you want to hear about your airplane but the boeing leadership ignored it it ignored this information because it felt that this plane was safe it, the, there's no problem with it it's not an issue partly that it it fell into a variant of the normalcy bias and here's where it fell the normalcy bias was applicable to boeing all the time in the past couple of decades, the previous models of the Boeing airplanes, the newer models were always safer than the older models. So the newer models, again, had less accidents, less problems, less issues than the older models. So each newer model was better and safer. In 
And they, the Boeing leadership, just couldn't accept the idea that this would trend wouldn't continue in the future. So again, this is a form of normalcy bias, where we think that the future will be like the past. And we are constitutionally incapable of feeling like the future will be different and we're coming to accept it. So the Boeing leadership really, you had the confirmation bias going on and you combined with the normalcy bias and that led Boeing to quickly produce the 737 MAX when they should have taken you know, a few more months to test out all the flaws and issues. And they cut a lot of corners when they were going through the approval process, pressuring the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority in the U.S., to approve it, going through back channels to get approvals because they thought that, hey, you know, this is just formality, bureaucratic formality. We need to get this plane out there, compete with Airbus. And they were ignoring all the information. The plane was not nearly as safe as they would have liked it to be. So this is an example of confirmation bias happening and really causing a great deal of damage for a major prominent global company. Let's stay on a couple of these biases for the moment because they also relate to innovation or collaboration within organizations. So we want to bring it to that level as well. And one of the ones that I feel so strongly about from my diversity perspective, right back to the early roots of diversity within countries, was the mere exposure effect. So for example, if you saw somebody who had different colored skin than you, when mm -hmm. there wasn't many in your country, at the start, your brain again fears that and you tend to reject it and it ends up creating racism, et cetera, et cetera, because we are wired mm -hmm. that way. So that's really important to understand. But building on that and building into how we see other departments within organizations, we often treat them differently. And particularly, even the information they bring us, we'll rate it very, very differently. And here you talk about the halo and horns effect. Yes, the halo and horns effect are fundamental for understanding tribalism. So let's go back to the tribalism from the savannah environment. In the savannah environment, it was incredibly important for us to be very tribal, to look for people like us, to, who had our values, who looked like us, who appeared like us, who thought like us. Because if we weren't sufficiently tribal, we would be kicked out of our tribe and then we'd die. Or our tribe would fall apart if other people weren't sufficiently tribal and then everyone in the tribe would die. And we would also not sufficiently oppose hostile tribes that were attacking our tribes. And then again, we'd die. And notice that we are all the descendants of those people who didn't die. So we are very tribal by nature. That, that's the nature, natural thing for us to be. And the halo and horns effect refer to that. So the halo effect refers to the fact that when you like a significant characteristic of someone, whether their appearance, something about their character, something about their personality, something about the group they belong to, then you will like that person as a whole more than they deserve. You'll give them more credit than they deserve. And the opposite is the horns effect. When you don't like someone because of a group that they belong to, because of the color of their skin, because of their appearance, because of things they say because of the, their thought patterns, then that will be something that you will dislike them more than they deserve to be disliked, and you will give them less credit than they deserve to be disliked. And this is a very common organization. So I'll give you an example. I was working with a financial, with a house, uh, with a real estate management company. And this real estate management company works with communities, 
and which outsource. So the community is outsourced to this company, things like landscaping, things like financial management. So the volunteer board of a community, of a group of uh, houses, group of apartment houses, just give the, gives those services to this real estate management company. But it was expanding quickly and it had a central department, so which took care of everything from IT to accounting to security, all those central operations strategy and local departments in various regions, which took care of direct client sales and client services. And so there was one group, and they had a lot of tensions with each other, unfortunately, which showed the hail and horns effect. And there was one example of where the local sales person was going, local the regional manager of a department, uh, regional department was going to this pretty large client, which was over $100,000 a year, so something like 80,000 pounds a year. And it was, the client wanted something different to appear differently on their financial statements, so that for their accounting statements. And so the regional manager went to the accounting department at the center and said, hey, can you please make this change so that it appears differently to them? Well, the accounting managers at the center said, hey, no way, this is not our policy, we only follow our policies, we're not going to change the appearance of that. And then they started emailing each other, and the emails got increasingly <laughs> nasty, they started using caps lock criticizing each other in they started seeing the ceo eventually the ceo had to get involved and he told me later that people were acting like psychopaths on email and i'm directly quoting here psychopaths on email now you never want the ceo to be saying that about yourself about you but that's what people what the ceo thought of their behavior and that comes from the halo and horns effect where the each department, so people on each regional level, had a halo effect toward others in that regional level. So the sales staff, the customer service staff, they felt a sense of unity, a sense of teamwork, a sense of collaboration. We work together. We are the people who do the real thing. We we focus on the client and the customer, and that's the main thing. Whereas the people in the center also had a sense of unity and teamwork around them, where they felt we focus on accounting, we focus on maintaining financial standards, we focus on policies. And they felt that they were doing the right thing. And, of course, then they had horns effects toward each other. They felt that the other team, the one who was either, so the center felt, the accounting team at the center felt that the client-focusing team in the regions were doing the wrong thing because they were focusing on the clients over the accounting standards policies. And the people in the regions felt that the center was doing the wrong thing because the center was focusing on policies over client needs. And so they had horns effects toward each other. And this is supremely common in companies where departments have a halo effect toward other people within that department. People feel a halo effect, sense of unity, teamwork, and a horns effect toward other departments. This is a huge problem in companies. happens all the time. You know, we talk about the positive benefits of teamwork. The teamwork is all great. It's wonderful. But unfortunately, teamwork is not nearly as great as you might think it is when teamwork causes people in one department to fight people in the other department because that's part of teams, right? You know, you root for your local team, you know, Manchester United versus Liverpool, you know, that's creating sense of teamwork, collaboration of all the Manchester United fans versus all the Liverpool fans. That happens in companies surprisingly often. So we had to do a lot of training around addressing this issue, around highlighting that this is a halo and horns effect issue, this is a tribalism issue, and this harms the company overall when you have these sorts of conflicts. And you need to 
address these conflicts specifically. So you, you need to bring them out to the top and show them that, hey, it's a natural thing to feel halo effect toward people in your department and horns effect toward people in other departments. That doesn't mean it's the right thing for the company or it fairly reflects the value of each department. There's a lot of benefit to being client-oriented. There's a lot of benefit to orienting toward protecting policies, having good policies. And you need to balance that and you need to value each type of activity. So eventually we're able to get them to play nicely together and focus on mutual respect as a critical part of company culture. But that took a lot of work on company culture and training and revision of this problem. Yeah, and this is related to so much to innovation. And I know you work with innovation and bringing new information mm -hmm. to companies. That is absolutely key because new information equals new connections in the brain and new ideas and ultimately innovation, or even if it is incremental innovation. But one of the biases that often holds businesses back is, for example, if that information comes from another department, for example, one of the biases that can hold us back is shooting the messenger or the mum effect. So the, there are a couple of biases relating to information and coming from different departments. One, of course, is the shooting the messenger or the mum effect. That refers to not bringing negative information up the chain of command. And that happens surprisingly often. So you'll see a lot of companies, especially larger companies, brought down by this question where people on the lower levels don't bring information up to their supervisor or the supervisor doesn't bring information to the top level C-suite leadership. That happens very often. And this is a big problem for companies. It's a natural, intuitive thing to do. It's something that happens very intuitively because of this shoot the messenger effect where we tend to associate negative information with the person who brought it. It's a natural thing. You know, somebody told you, somebody's giving you some negative information, you know, even if it's constructive critical feedback, it's going to cause you intuitively, naturally to feel angry and upset about the person who's bringing you this information, even though the person might not be at all at fault in bringing this information. So of course it harms collaboration between departments and especially bringing things up the chain of command when you have that chain of hierarchy where the person to whom you bring negative information can then you know fire you or demote you or it can be a career limiting move this is why the whistleblowers have so much trouble of course with getting protection because whistleblowers are the essential example of bringing negative information up the chain of command publicizing it and so on and of course the, when you bring innovative information innovative information is often not pleasant it's not easy to hear because it goes against people's current existing beliefs, it goes against the confirmation bias. So that that is a really big problem. So that's the kind of the mum effect uh, dynamic. I want to make sure to highlight a couple of other related biases around the work between different departments that undermine innovation. One is called the not invented here effect. And the not invented here effect, this is kind of like it sounds, when you have great ideas that are outside the company, outside the department, they tend to be not emphasized nearly sufficiently. They tend to be ignored. They tend to be kind of, oh, it's not invented here, therefore it's bad. You know, there's something that's not uh, our, it's not ours, it's weird, it doesn't fit our environment, even though it might be the best things in sliced bread for the, for the department, for the environment, for the company, they will very often ignore it. They will say that, you know, this is not invented here and therefore this is not something that we should be paying attention to. That's one thing that impedes innovation. 
The other thing that impedes innovation is called the IKEA effect. Now, the IKEA effect is really interesting. It's when you invent something, you create something, and then you value it more than you should. It's named after, the, of course, the Swedish furniture store, IKEA, where famously, according to extensive studies, when people put furniture together themselves, they value it much more than the actual value of the furniture on the free market. So, you know, you put together a table and, you know, somebody that, that's worth $50. Objectively on the market, that's what people would pay for it. And But you wouldn't let go for it. You let go of it even if, you, you know, when you sell it, you're not going to sell it for less than $100. So if you're trying to get rid of it, trying to sell it, you're not going to sell it even though you really should sell it at $50. Now, often the same thing happens with home improvements when people do home improvements. And for businesses, this is why businesses very often ask too much for their products. So products that are that they create, that they launch, they ask too much for them compared to market value. That's one. So it's when people are trying to sell a business, they very often ask for way too much compared to what the actual objective value of the business is. Now, the actual objective value of the business when you want to sell a business, so if you're a solopreneur, if you're a small business owner, and you're trying to sell a business, you generally want to multiply the profits of the business by two times to three times, and that will give you the value of sales. And that's very uncomfortable for people to hear because they think it should be 10 times the value of sales or 20 times the value of profit, or they want to multiply it by revenue instead of by profit, which again, you know, considering costs, that doesn't make sense, but that's what people tend to want to do. So this is why they run, a lot of people run into a lot of trouble when selling businesses. And uh, this is something I have a lot of conversations with my clients about when they're trying to sell their business and they're wondering why people aren't buying. And I'm like, okay, the innovation aspect of it is when you create an idea inside your department, your company, you tend to value it a lot and value it more than it should be worth. So you create an idea, you tend to hold on to it, you, you think it's it's the best thing since sliced bread, and it's actually not nearly as good as you think it is, but you tend to value it way too much compared to how good it actually is compared to the other, the space of ideas out there. We're going to come back to individuals in a second. But let's bring it to an organizational change perspective, looking at the thinking and the wiring that restricts us. So for example, I work in an organization, I'm convinced we need to innovate, I bring some step change suggestions to my senior partners, and they insist on more market research, which is information bias, and then suggest we just tinker with existing products and incrementally improve them. How about you deconstruct this from a bias perspective, Gleb, because this is a situation so many of our listenership find themselves in as change makers and entrepreneurs within organizations. So the information bias is a really important one. It's where we tend to seek too much information before making a decision. And this is something that you really want to be careful about. Whenever you're making a decision, whenever you're deciding on what to do, you want to make the information that you seek proportional to the importance of the decision. So if it's a small decision, not too important, you don't want to spend too much time looking for information. If it's a medium decision, something that makes a significant impact on your bottom line, but not really fundamental, then you want to spend some somewhat more time, but not too much time. If you're actually trying to decide on a, your major next product for the next three years or major pivot in strategy for your company, then you want to spend a whole bunch of time on evaluating this question. So the step changes depend, of course, on how 
important the step changes are. And if they're not so important, then you want to focus on gathering only sufficient information, only a certain amount of information before you decide whether to do them or not. And again, one of the greatest ways of gathering information is to experiment, launch an experiment and see what kind of information you get from the experiment. Because there's a, could be a lot of hypotheticals in your head where, you know, this thing can happen and another thing can happen. And uh, this will be proven by you launching a small experiment. So this is my best suggestion for addressing some of this, what's called the status quo bias, where people tend to be very much oriented toward the status quo. Now, just to be clear, the status quo bias is, again, one of those things that comes from our revolutionary heritage. In the ancient savannah, it was pretty dangerous to change the dynamics, the, the way that you do things. Because if you change things, there's a lot of threat that if you change things, then, then you will make serious mistakes and you will die. So it was pretty risky to take risks. It was actually very dangerous for people's lives to take risks. So it was wired into us that it's we should really focus on maintaining the status quo unless there's overwhelming need to change or overwhelming reasons to try to experiment to do something else. So you need to understand that this feeling of status quo is something that you need to explain to people as part of addressing the problem. So a lot of this, when you're working with you know the leaders in your organization, you're trying to tell them that, hey, this is a natural feeling. This is a natural information bias is a natural feeling. So you need to explain these things to them and then suggest low risk measures to evaluate whether your step change, whether your step-by-step -step changes work. So low risk measure might be launching some kind of experiment that's really low risks. And that is something that you need to help them understand that this is not going to be a problem. This is not a permanent thing. This is just an experiment to gather information on whether the changes that you make, maybe if you're if they're internal changes in the company, you can launch them within one department only instead of the whole company. And then you could see how people in the department respond. Are they going to be more effective at their production? Is their productivity going to be improved by 9%? That's great if you can improve their productivity by 9%. And if you can demonstrate that, then you can go with that information and say, hey, here's what happened. And of course, if it's external, you can experiment with launching a new product to a certain segment of the market. Don't make it a huge launch, don't make it a big thing, but just experiment with it and see what happens, see how that market responds. Maybe you want to run some ads about a product and see how much click-through you get. So all of these things will help get you information. And this information on whether indeed your ideas make sense, that would be really helpful to instead of tinkering with existing products, which is just which is very tempting. So the part of the status quo bias involves not departing far and much from the status quo. And this is a very strong temptation because, you know, if it works, why depart from it? And are people going to be rewarded in the company for departing from the status quo in a major way? So if you want to depart from the status quo in a major way, you have to have a lot of information and you have to launch these experiments which demonstrate that your departure from the status quo indeed will be helpful. Those are some of the dynamics that you want to be thinking about. Ideally, you want to get buy-in from the top-level leadership on this. So it depends, of course, on the structure of your company and so on. There's some danger in going around your immediate supervisor, but especially if you have the support of your immediate supervisor, often the very top level leadership will be much more supportive for disrupting the status quo because they're looking at the long term. And they know that their current existing products, the current existing products that they have will not work out well in the long term. It's just the nature of products. If you look at the product growth curve, you often have a 
quick hockey stick shape growth in the beginning and then it flattens out and then growth goes down. So top level leaders know this. They understand the strategy of things and they understand that they need innovative new products and it's hard for them to come up within the company. And so if they have people within the company who are willing to go and experiment with a product, they will often give them their support. So if you have your immediate supervisor support and you get top level leadership support for launching experiments and then showing the results of these experiments that they do work, then slowly over time you can build support within the company for your major departure. So that's what you want to do if you do plan to have a major departure from the status quo. One of those departures is on an individual level as well. And one of the goals of this show is to unshackle industries, organizations and individuals from the thinking and wiring that does restrict us, but also expose everyone to new information that perhaps they haven't heard before. But many times I get emails from listeners saying that new information helped them make new decisions and ultimately change their lives in some way where maybe they changed jobs or launched into a new innovation, etc. that proved successful. But many, many people are very fearful of leaving their jobs because of restricting a restricting cocktail of loss aversion bias, information bias and status quo bias and many others, I presume. But here you mentioned the usefulness of long term future and repeating scenarios thinking, Gleb. Yes. So this is one of the critical things that you want to be thinking about when you're deciding on whether to be innovative, whether to launch a new company, whether to start up a new product, whether to change your career, is that we very much tend to be short term oriented. And so there is a cognitive bias called hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting refers to us orienting toward the short term and undercounting, greatly undercounting, hyperbolically discounting the value of the long term. That's why it's called that. It's a weird name, I know. So why did we why do we do that? Well it all goes back to the Savannah environment. In the Savannah environment, I mean think about us, the hunter gatherers living in that environment, when we killed more ma- more meat, well, killed the mammoth, had more meat than we can deal with it. We couldn't refrigerate it. We couldn't store it, right? We could. There was no way for us to realistically invest much resources into the future. So it's not like we were planting things and then harvesting things. That, that was not part of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. We didn't have a bank into which we could invest money. We didn't have we, you know, we couldn't invest into our professional development. It's not like you can become a better axe chipper, right? But here in the modern environment, that's very different. We're in a completely different context where indeed you can invest a lot of resources into your future, into protecting your future. You can put your money in a bank. You can get investors to invest into a potential startup that you are starting up. You can, of course, invest into your career, into your professional development, whether taking a number of courses and so on, building up your network, you know, building up your uh, your thought leadership. All of these things will really serve you well in the future, depending, of course, on what course you want to pursue. But it doesn't feel like it. That's not what it feels like. It feels very uncomfortable for us to do that. So. We need to orient much more toward the long-term future than we feel like we should, than we feel like we should. So a lot of people, for example, if they can write an article, they think, oh, what's what's writing an article going to get me? But they don't realize that an article that you wrote will stay around forever, you know, available online forever, and you can use it in a whole variety of ways that you're not thinking about, or, you know, do a podcast interview, or a whole variety of things that can serve you well in the long term, that will have repeating, ongoing value for you in the long term. Or if you build some relationships right now, you might not know and think about what kind of 
of value they might have down the road, but they might turn out really valuable for you down the road. And I can give a whole bunch of examples from my own, my own life and my client's experience where that happens. So, for example, one of my clients built a relationship with some folks from his local community who were in financial management. And then eventually, I think it was four years from then, he decided to do a startup. And some of these folks who he built in relationships with in the financial management community, they had connections to local startup investors, so angel investors. And these angel investors, because he built up the relationship with these uh, people, he was able to maintain these relationships. And then they trusted him enough to connect him with their contacts, with their capital, with their angel investors and said, hey, you know, this is a good guy. You know, I think he has a good idea. I've known him for a long time. He's trustworthy. You know, invest into that. And he got investment into the company, which he wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. He, you know, he, because he couldn't break into the angel investor circles because he didn't have connections built up with them. But for this back route through financial managers, he was able to break into these investor circles. So this is the kind of example where thinking about the long-term future is really helpful. And of course, repeating scenarios is a part of that. So think about repeating scenarios. Do you do some networking or do you not do some networking? Each individual networking activity that you do might not feel like it's worth it and you might not get anything from it immediately in the moment. But think about the outcome of a number if you do that for a number of years. What is going to be the outcome if you do do that for a number of years with a number of people? And if you create a system, a process by which you do networking, by which you do thought leadership like articles and blogs and whatnot, whatever, like podcasts, all of these things over time will spread either the blogs and podcasts and articles will spread information about you and the relationships will slowly cultivate trust each in each successful networking engagement with each individual helps build up trust with that individual and of course if you have a system and process of a number of people then you're building up trust with a number of people and so you're building up your social capital going forward or your thought leadership with articles and that social capital going forward will eventually pay off because that's kind of the repeating scenarios because you cultivate that trust. And that's an example with the angel investors that it really paid off for one of my clients. Let's jump to something else here, the coin flip conundrum. Really, if you break down our lives, many, many parts of our days, of our weeks, of our months, of our years, of our livelihoods are a series of coin flips in a way. And this is a dilemma that was posed to you by your mentor and which had a Mm -hmm. profound impact on your life. And you present in your keynotes all the time. So I'll hand it over to you to present this to our listeners as a kind of a finale and a way to think about life going forward. Sure. So imagine the situation. Somebody gives you $40 and says, hey, here you go. Here's $40. Uh, here are 40 pounds. You know, keep it. And then they say, I have a proposition for you. I can flip this you know, coin or you can give me a quarter from your uh, wallet if you, you know, want to make sure it's a fair coin. And if it lands heads, I will give you $100. If it lands tails, I will give you, you nothing. But you have to give me the $40, pow- the $40 that I just gave you for that opportunity. Do you do that or do you not do that? So think about that. Now, whenever the large majority of people are asked this, large majority of people won't. They prefer to keep the $40. They don't want to give that up for uh, the opportunity for a coin flip for $100 of heads, zero of tails. And that's what I did when the the professor who was my mentor offered that to me. However, the professor said, well, think about it this way. What is the actual probability uh, that you will get heads or tails, that you will get $100? 
it's going to be 50%, of course, 50% heads, 50% tails. So 50% of $100 is $50 versus $40, which I'm giving up for that opportunity. So it's the equivalent of getting $50 for $40. Now, it still doesn't feel like it. It feels pretty risky. You know, you might get zero. But what if it's 10 coin flips? You know, what if it's 100 coin flips? What if it's 1,000 coin flips, 10,000 coin flips? What if it's 100,000 coin flips? So think about what happens with 100,000 coin flips. So with 100,000 coin flips, you can, if you keep your $40 for those 100,000 coin flips, that's the equivalent of $4 million. So that's $4 million. Now, if you take the risk and give up the, you know, the money the, each time, the $40, for the coin flip, the equivalent of $50, you get over those 100,000 coin flips, 5 million, an average of 5 million, you know, a couple of hundred thousand more, a couple of hundred thousand less. <laughs> so that is what you're giving up. You're giving, it's the equivalent of holding on to 4 million and not and giving up 5 million. Each time that you choose to not pay $40 for a coin flip, with a heads $100 and tails $50. Now, when I heard that, I was pretty confused. I told the professor, well, why didn't you tell me that? You know, if it's a repeat, if you told me that it's a repeating scenario, especially, you know, 100,000 times, you know, I would have thought about this differently. And what the professor said is that, you know, it, this is the same thing that each, all people experience. We treat each individual decision in front of us as a one-time decision. That's what it feels like. It feels like a one-time decision. And we don't want to lose. That We are constitutionally built to not want to lose. Because in the Savannah environment, I think back to that long time ago, it was very risky to bet something. We had very few resources. Each resource was precious. And if we won a whole bunch of resources, you know, I already gave the example of if you, if you took a serious risk to kill a mammoth and, the, you know, you might be injured or something like that, you know, however likely the likelihood is, and you might die. However, you might also get a mammoth. But then there, a lot of the meat will go to waste. It will rot because you won't be able to eat the meat. So is it really worth it to pursue a mammoth that take that huge mammoth risk? You probably don't want to do that in that environment. You probably want to pursue something safer. In our current environment, we can actually use that whole mammoth meat, use that whole, take that risk. You know, about 50% of all startups fail within the first five years, about to about two-thirds of them fail within the first 10 years and about three-quarters fail within the first 15 years. But if you do succeed, sometimes you can make a lot of money. And of course, you can make uh, you, the likelihood of success better and higher when you do the, when you then the 75% chance of failing within 15 years if you go about it smartly. But you can make quite a lot of money from you know, risking some of your money and some investor money, right? So that is something that you need to be thinking about. What kind of choices are you making each day? Each time that you're facing a choice in front of you, it feels like you don't want to lose. That's called loss aversion. It's one of the most pernicious cognitive biases that we're facing, one of the most harmful ones, where because we don't want to lose our resources, we don't take risks that we really should take. And our whole life, the professor told me, and what I really learned experience that really blew my mind is kind of made up of a hundred thousand coin flips each day we're taking a risk are we do we send that email or do we not send that email do we ask someone for help or do we not ask someone for help do we ask someone out on a date or not ask someone out on a date you know all of these sorts of things so personal life and professional life 
Do we ask someone to give a referral to us or not give a referral to us? All of those things, it feels scary, but what, what are the consequences? You know, you might, uh, somebody might think that, hey, you know, you are too arrogant to ask a referral from me, or they can say, great, sure, I'll give a referral, and then you can make the most important connection of your life. So these are the kinds of things you want to be thinking about, and you want to treat each individual choice in front of you as part of a long series of choices, as part of a repeating series of choices. And that's where you can change fundamentally in a very fundamental basic way your thinking your perceptions to orient toward the five million not the four million because you you want to overcome that gut intuition not to do the safe choice and orient toward five million who wouldn't want five million over four million over the course of your life right in order to get the five million you have to set a policy for yourself in order to make sure that you overcome your gut reactions which are really going to be damaging for you i mean that difference is a 20% difference over your lifetime. You know, think about 20% of your salary over, over your lifetime. That's going to be pretty sucky if you don't get 20% of your salary over your lifetime, especially with compounding interest. So you want to orient toward getting 5 million, not 4 million. You want to orient toward making smart risks. And we are our gut reactions are not oriented toward doing that. Yeah, and the other thing is it's a trait of innovators and change makers. But I thought... I'd share this because I th think it's pretty important what you say here. And it will explain why I've done shows on mindfulness and meditation in the past, because they really do. And you're a neuroscientist and brain experts and neuroscientists tell us that mindfulness and meditation change the structure of your brain and can enhance our cognitive capacity and skill set. And it's so important to be able to deal with our cognitive biases as well. It really is. And this was surprisingly when I saw the research on this. You know, I did, did mindfulness before for a sense of calm, for a sense of inner balance. But when I saw research on the focusing effects of mindfulness, this really helped me understand that it also helps with decision making, helps with addressing cognitive biases. One of the most fundamental ways that we address cognitive biases is by noticing them, focusing on them. And mindfulness meditation really helps build up your attention, your ability to focus on things. So that's a fundamental skill, a fundamental trait, a fundamental aspect of mindfulness. And the more you practice mindfulness, the more you build up your focus, your attention. And of course, attention is incredibly important in our current world, where there's so many things tugging at our attention. So it's not simply for cognitive biases, but in particular related to cognitive biases, you're much more able to notice all of the cognitive biases that we've been talking about, whether confirmation bias, whether loss aversion, status quo bias, hail and horns effect, all of these things. And by noticing them, that's the first step to overcoming them. And my book, of course, talks about that in much more detail. But the first step to overcoming these problems is by noticing them and meditation helps you do that. So last thing then, you share five questions that we can ask ourselves to avoid decision disasters, whether that be in business or in any aspect of life. I'd love if you shared these five questions at a top level club. So what important information didn't I yet fully consider is the first question. We have a lot of cognitive biases like the confirmation bias and similar ones that cause us to cherry pick information to be to go toward whatever choice we already prefer in a certain decision. But what you want to do is look for information that goes against your beliefs. Try to show, to prove that you're wrong. If you can't prove that you're wrong, that's great. You're more likely to be right. But if you can't prove that you're wrong, that's also great because then you'll make a better choice. Second, 
what dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases, didn't I yet address? So which of these cognitive biases didn't you consider yet? It depends, of course, on each decision. When you're dealing with people, the halo and horns effect might be at play. When you're dealing with risk choices, the status quo bias model and loss aversion might be at play. So think about each one and as relevant to the decision that you're making. Third, what would a trusted an objective advisor suggest I do? So think about that angel on your shoulder. Think about what you would tell a close friend who you to do about a decision just like this one. You get about 50% of the benefit of this question just by asking it. And you get the other 50% of the benefit by calling your trusted and objective advisor or if you're a millennial texting this person. Fourth, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So think about this decision. How have you addressed all the ways that it can go wrong? Imagine that it completely failed, whatever you're doing, completely and utterly failed. Think about all the reasons why it failed. Why did it go wrong? And then integrate these reasons into your decision, into your decision implementation plan to prevent it from failure. Finally, Question five, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? What would cause you to change your mind? Now, when we make a decision, we're very emotionally attached to the decision. So the, uh, it's called post-factum justification, where we justify our decision after the fact because we made it, and therefore we would be wrong and bad if we had go back on the decision, unless we decide in advance what would cause us to change our mind to revisit this decision. In that case, we are much more likely to revisit the decision if the initial decision proved to be not the right one and we can make a much better decision going forward. It just took me a couple of minutes to talk through these five questions, but <laughs> these questions can save you thousands and thousands of, thou of hours and hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases for companies with which I've worked if you ask them about every decision that you don't want to screw up. You know, you'll ask them five, seven times a day. Take a couple of minutes to ask them. That decreases your future work by thousands and thousands of hours and, again, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I would strongly recommend that any decision that you don't want to screw up, you ask these questions about it. Yeah, and they're very helpful from a personal level as well, from getting on with people, from relationships, from family, mm -hmm. from children, all these kind of things. You kind of go, is it really worth blowing my lid here or flipping my lid because I'm going to have to live with the consequences going forward. So it's re it's a really helpful book, and I highly recommend it, Leb. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, etc.? They can find out much more about all of my work on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, that's my website, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's videos, blogs, podcasts, decision aids, guides, manuals, virtual coaching, trainings, classes. You especially want to check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video-based module course on making the wisest decisions. Now, my book is available in bookstores everywhere. They might be shed around you. So if that's <laughs> the case, you want to check out, uh, you want to check it out online on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Books A Million, wherever you get your books. And finally, I'm very available on LinkedIn. So if you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, just connect with me there. Ask those questions. Happy to chat. Dr. Gleb Tsipursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Dr. Gleb Tsipursky, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Aiden. It's been a pleasure.